Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. I'm super excited to have on the show today a fellow podcaster, Anne Merlowski, who is the VP of Digital and Performance Marketing at Terminus. She also just recently launched her awesome podcast called Sassy, which helps get more leaders, women leaders, I should specify, women leaders in tech behind the mic on stage, get more highlight on them, which you know I'm all about. And she's has 15 plus years of experience in B2B marketing. So we have much to talk about today. And thank you and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jane. It's so nice to get to meet you. I've been a longtime listener of your podcast and you are one of the inspirations for why I wanted to become a podcaster myself. Oh, I might cry. That's so awesome to hear. I love seeing more and more women podcasters popping up, especially in our space, because it just, like I've said before, it's just inundated with men in the feed, which, you know, they're great. They're awesome. We can learn from them too, but we got to balance it out because in the real world, there is actually, excuse more female, the marketing world. So it's, we got to balance out the, the podcast and the stage with more women everywhere, right? Absolutely. Love it. Well, I love to dive into from the get-go, just how you got into this fun road that we call B2B marketing. What did your career path start out like? Yeah. So I actually started in nonprofits. I had studied journalism. And when I graduated from college, people weren't hiring journalists anymore. You know, they were really starting to, you know, print paper was going away, magazines were going away, and it was kind of this digital evolution. And so the next logical thing for me at the time was I went into nonprofits and I started looking at, you know, how do we connect with people online? And so this was like the early years of Facebook and social media marketing. And so I started doing nonprofit marketing on Facebook when you couldn't even create a page for your business yet. And it was something that taught me a lot about how do you engage with people? How do you really have that neuro marketing mindset to get people to be connected to your brand and behave as if you are a person? Because to actually be on Facebook in that time frame, you had to personify your brand. And so we had we had a logo, a nonprofit I worked for was called Girls Incorporated. And we had a logo that was three girls. And so we gave each of those girls names oh. and personalities, and we personified them out in the market. And it was really, really fun. I love and that. so I stayed in nonprofit for a few years, went to an agency that specialized in nonprofit. And very quickly, social media became search engine optimization, because it was kind of how does this all tie to creating content for your website and being found. And so that's kind of the path that led me to where I am now, where digital marketing is all yeah. about not just social media and what we think of as, you know, as a consumer, we, it's also how do we create content and create those communities for businesses and how something I always think about is how are we as coming to work as a buying persona in a business, we are also people. And we also have yeah. individual thoughts and goals. And so I try to really think about that as how do we, when we connect with our buying committee and our personas, how do we treat them like the people they are with the experiences they have and not just the accounts that they stand and represent? Yes. So many layers to this that I want to dive into as I jot down my quick notes. 
So one thing you said, something that I've never heard before a term, and I want to double click on it, as people say, neural marketing mindset. Can you explain this? I love the term and I'm, I'm only probably ex- understanding 85% of it. So please explain. Yeah. So it's really how do people think and behave and what are their motivators? And so I think there's a book that I read probably very early on in my career called Neuromarketing. And she might've actually even had a podcast out about it, if I remember correctly, or she had done some interviews and that's how I'd heard about it. And it's all about how do you engage with how people think and behave and what are the actual internal motivators that drive us to make decisions? Not just I want to make more money in my career. That's not the driver. Like what is it the intrinsic driver that makes people make the decisions that they do? And it really ties to in B2B where we talk about pain points. How do we align with pain points? Anytime you're doing that, you're actually thinking about neuromarketing. It's what is it that makes you make those decisions? And it's not usually, you know, I just want to save more time. That's not usually it. It's I just want to make more money. That's not actually what motivates people. What is it that motivates people? Yes. So that goes perfectly into another question I have is how do you get deeper into those true meanings and needs, right? Because I'll give clear examples. At my current company, I work for work and automation platform. We want to partner more with automation consultants. And when, yes, first step is talk to them, right? Interview them, learn about them. But when we talk to them, we hear the surface things of, so what's driving you? What do you want? We want more leads. We want to do better for our clients. We want to have bigger profit margins. We want to have more efficient platforms to use. And there's all these, these things that are great. Yes. And we can have messaging that speaks to these, but how do you get to deeper pain points or deeper, like what their thoughts and goals are on a deeper level than those surface things that people share? So I think something that's really interesting in in agile, which we don't do a lot of agile in marketing, obviously there is, you can do agile marketing, but agile really has this mindset of how do you walk the floor of the people who are doing the job? Not just asking them how they do their job, but perhaps Mm -hmm. watching them, looking at recordings of their user experience of your top users or doing, you know, more of that, like more generative user research where you're actually bringing in somebody to say, Hey, I want to see how you navigate my website. Can you find X, Y, Z thing? And then doing a recording of that. I think that that's sometimes where you can get a lot more information. And walking the factory floor is really about building a relationship with someone. It's not just that interview where you're asking them their pain points, but it's perhaps utilizing them. You know, you think about your customer forums or your customer communities where you have a roundtable every quarter. People, as they get to know and trust you, they're way more willing to tell you the truth of what they're experiencing versus just that surface level. Yeah, I want X, Y, Z. And I think it's just, it comes back to, you have to build that relationship. And, you know, you think about it in the sense of back in the day when we were people who worked in person or even, you know, people who worked with our hands in factories, they'd walk the floor and that's how they looked at processes and they'd see, they would observe the actual behaviors. And in tech, we don't do that enough. We don't actually use things that are tracking people's behavior on website or user experience tools that are tracking clicks inside apps and functionality and software. And I think that that can be super, super powerful to actually understand. And then taking that information and going back and doing the interview after and saying, hey, I saw you do this. Why did you have to do it that way? Tell me more about what you're trying to do. Because sometimes I think that's where we find things that are broken or things we could improve that when we're so close to the tree, we don't know that actually they're not trying to get to X report. They're trying to find this information for a completely different purpose. 
Yes. Okay. You're getting me very excited for something we're going to test out next at work. And it's, there's tools like full story, right? That are perfect for kind of walking the floor as you're calling it and seeing how your users are on your website and then how they come into your platform if you're in SaaS. So that's been super, super helpful to see where they're struggling, right? Where they drop off, why they drop off, like seeing it firsthand is so great. And then second, we're going to try something. I think it's called user interviews. So doing exactly that, like walking through with them to see what they're thinking, like just kind of fly on the wall, but directly with them on the call, just like this and seeing where they go first and where they are have blockers. They can ask questions live. So really pumped for that one-to-one feedback and experience there. Love it. It's so true that I love, I need to look into neuromarketing once and find that, that book and podcast. I'm going to go deeper into that, but needing to, I mean, we always come back to B2B. We're always focused on the company and we need to humanize, right. And personify and bring it back to the people behind. So I think we're getting, we've gotten better at that, especially with social media the past few years. And we were talking before we turned the mics on about just remote work and needing to connect with people. So we've, we've kind of gotten better at connecting virtually and becoming more building our own personal brands, even on behalf of the company. So that's all I think helped a bit there. Absolutely. And something I've been thinking about too lately, and tell me if, if this isn't of interest at all, <laughs> everyone share comments on this episode, but what do you feel like are your strong suits? Cause I've been a generalist my whole career. I mean, I've, I've, I've had certain areas that I'm, I would say much stronger in versus others, but I'm curious, what do you consider yourself as the term generalist applicable anymore? Is it used anymore? And what do you, what do you consider your core strengths? I think generalists are so strong in so many different roles. And that's why it's such an important thing to test out different aspects of marketing, understand what your passions are, what your motivators are. And I think for me, what makes me really unique is I come from that content dev background. I think in, yeah. you'll see a lot of people when you follow their career paths, they'll either say, I am a, I am a content marketer. And then they go up the brand path. They become a content, their copywriter or their social media manager, and then they become a content manager and then they become a content director or a creative director. And they kind of follow that up the brand path to corporate marketing. And they don't typically take that shift that I've taken into demand gen. And I think that it ties together really nicely and it makes my experience really unique in how I look at how am I actually generating demand for a business? And it's, through content. It's content helps connect the dots. Content, be it content that is product marketing content, content that is customer marketing content, content that is just filling pages on your website. All of that is iterative to generate demand. And so there's obviously a goal of every piece of content and it should be to generate interest in your business. And so I think that because I see everything as content and I've always seen everything as content, that's how I connect the dots And it just, it's a unique way of looking at demand gen that you don't hear a lot of. Yeah. I love that. I mean, content is a necessity for demand gen, right? So especially in B2B, it's just a a must have the core of demand gen. So that makes a lot of sense. We were talking a little bit about this to the content dev, like the the impact of SEO and AI and content dev. Actually, can you explain content dev a little bit more? Like, is it content development? That's what that's short for. And like content creation, is it the same thing? Am I getting that right? Yeah, content creation or content development. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Just want to make sure. So the impact of SEO, AI and content development, I mean, that's all changed so much in the past 
year, I was going to say a few years, but even just this past year has been extreme on BOFU and inbound for demand gen. How are you seeing all of this the past year impact that BOFU channel? Well, so you think about, you know, what has Google been doing for years now? Google is, they're in the business of keeping you engaged on the search engine results page and showing the best and highest quality things that you are most likely to click on so that they can serve ads. Well, as that has kind of shifted, they don't want to send you off of their site. They want to keep you on page. They want to keep you, just like every website, their job is to keep you on their website so they can, you scroll and they can serve you more ads. And you'll see that now where they have, you know, questions that pop up. And when you open up those questions, then those questions dig into actual pages. And a lot of what that's doing is generative AI. It's ingesting the information off of the websites that it's scrolling and it's writing something new and unique. And so when you're building your websites, you have to think about how do I say something unique enough that their generative AI is going to serve that as an answer or serve it as a question that's going to tie back to your website, which is very different Mm -hmm. from how we used to do SEO, where we would do SEO, where we're talking about very specific terms. I want to rank for account-based marketing. And so I'm going to write 15 pieces of content about account-based marketing because that shows depth depth of, you know, knowledge around the subject. Now it's really, how do I say something that's going to tie to a generative AI search that's relevant to my persona? And so that comes back to, you can't have AI generate everything on your website, because if you do that, you lose the ingenuity, you lose the uniqueness, because if every competitor in a space used generative AI, it would all start to sound the same. And so you have to have that unique voice, that unique perspective. And that's what's going to help when Google pulls that data and uses it to develop their generative AI. You want it to be the earmark of your brand. And so it's so important to have that personal voice and tone that is what your, you know, your secret sauce of your brand and developing content that is truly relevant to users. And it's going to relate back to things that they might be researching and searching for before. It was just, if I developed 10 pieces of content and I had 15 companies linked to that content, I was going to show up at the top and that was going to result in clicks. And those clicks were going to result in bottom of the funnel conversions. And that's just not how it works anymore. It has to be showing true expertise that doesn't sound like a cookie cutter copy of everything else you see on the internet. Mm. So how do you combat that? Because you you almost have to use AI because everybody is using it, right? Which sounds like such a cop out now that I say that out loud, but it's, it's a necessity just to stay on the, on the playing field. So how do you work with this? Do you put a percentage that's AI generated and then a percentage that's 100% human? Or do you have a combination of both for all content? I think you have to use both. I think that AI, when it can make your content creation happen faster, it's really, really powerful. But you can't just let the robots drive the car, so to speak. Like you do have to have people who are editing it for tone, people who are editing it for voice, people who are just looking for, because AI has a habit of adding in, you know, really wild adjectives all over the place. And you would never say those naturally. (laughs) Yeah, it's very excited. It's, 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 you're dynamically influencing your revenue and it's just things that sound, it sounds like there should be 15 exclamation points at the end of every sentence. And so you need to have a human look that for authenticity. And so I think that that's going to be a skill of content managers as we kind of move forward is how do you copy edit? 
versus copyright. Yes. And how do you yes. copy edit something that was created by AI for voice and tone so that it matches voice and tone of your company and sounds authentic to the person who you're actually writing it for? Yes, that's so true. I'm I'm seeing on my end a switch from like you just said, content writers, right, to content editors. And I'm curious what are your thoughts on that? Do you think you still need both or do you think it's very important for content writers out there to grasp this editing component and kind of transfer their skills to this other, I guess, piece in this, this process? I think we're going to need to be really, really careful to not lose the skills of being a good content writer. Yeah, Like those foundational yeah. skills of how do you tell a compelling story? It's going to be super easy to overly rely on AI, especially in the B2B space. I think if you get into the world of fiction or the world of, you know, more creative writing, that's probably not going to happen as much in that space. But here it's just, it's yeah. an easy button to say, Hey, I don't need four copywriters anymore. I need one person who can just pop in prompts into AI tool and generate content. But so I think we just have to be really careful and we have to make sure that we are protecting our brand voice and sounding unique and knowing what our brand voice is. And how do you write a unique voice as a copywriter? That is not an easy thing to do. And the people who do yeah. it really well, do it amazing. And the people who don't know how to do it, typically, you know, they become the people who write really base level copy and they never really progress in their careers. And that's unfortunate, but it's, yeah. it's something, it's a gift. It's something you can grow and you learn from really good editors. You have to still have your really good yes. editors who can edit people and robots in the same sense. And I think that a lot of people who copyright typically until before AI never became copy editors. And you have to know that your first stage is understanding how to write really well. And then that will grow you into how to become a really good editor. Yes. How do you feel about the use of AI in long form versus short form content? So for instance, an ebook or a playbook that's either gated or ungated, we can go down that path after, or like a social posts that are so important right now that are very, you know, short copy for the most part and engaging like quippy copywriting really versus like long form content. Where do you see the use of AI versus human writers on both ends? I think it's better in short form content because usually mm. when you're trying to condense a thought down to 140 characters, even though that's not the limit anymore, yeah. you can input enough information into the AI tool that then they're actually helping you with conciseness and helping yes. you get your point across faster. When you're using long form AI for long form content, it becomes very repetitive. It becomes very inauthentic yes. and it just, it so sounds true. like AI. And I think that that's where if you want to have your copywriter do their first stab at your outline and your, or do have AI do your outline. I actually think that's really powerful. Have AI do your outline, your copywriter go through and they write two thirds of it. And then they say, Hey, fill in the blanks about X, Y, Z thing. And then pop that back in. I think that that can be a really good way to get more value out of the AI tool and also more length out of your content without feeling like you're being repetitive. Yeah. Cause I think that's one of the dangers yes. in B2B is you can spin up seven eBooks or seven playbooks that are almost the exact yes. same thing. And without yes. even meaning to be repetitive, you are repetitive because you know that a piece of gated content is probably not going to be, each one's not going to be downloaded by seven, the same seven, per, same person seven times. So you're going to be able to reuse a lot of stuff, but it becomes habit forming. 
it's something, how do we still create uniqueness? And that's, you look at, you know, writers who are prolific, like somebody like a Stephen King, every one of his novels is unique. And we could apply that same kind of creative writing to B2B if we took the time. And it requires kind of leaning off of the brakes of AI and saying, hey, let's go back to what matters to humans. Let's write this for a human. And then let's use AI to fill in the blanks and really build this up and make it more robust. I wonder if uh, this could be very subjective or just because of things I've searched, but I feel like I've seen more and more courses and and educational content about storytelling, like training people on storytelling. I wonder if that's going to be a big, big emphasis because as you're saying, like that's the human component. Like, hey, I can write a story if you ask it to. I My old boss actually used to use it to tell bedtime stories to his kids. He would ask ChatGPT to tell a story about his, he'd put his kids' names in and it would create a cute bedtime story for them, but it's not going to be Stephen King level storytelling. You know, it's like, it's perfect for kids, (laughs) but the, the uniqueness of the storytelling and the ideas, the ideation piece is where maybe where we can focus on and bring that something that AI just can never knock on wood emulate, or is that even the right word, but just copy or replicate. Oh, absolutely. I think that storytelling is a skill that applies to every facet of marketing be it B2C, be it B2B, be it PR, whatever it is that you're doing, you are telling yeah. a story. And that I think is it's so important. And uh, there's a really interesting masterclass by Neil Gaiman, and he talks about the art of telling a story. And I think that that wow. is something that you can take those skills and it's intended for writing fiction, right? But you take that and you pull it into how you tell the story of what journey you're trying to take people on in B2B, it still applies. It's still back to internal motivators. What is it that drives people and what they think and how they behave? They are people. They're at the end of the day, they are people sitting on the other end of a screen. Wow. Yeah. All comes back to that neural marketing mindset. I I swear that's going to be a new term that I use on the regular. Thank you, Anne. (laughs) So we're talking about AI and content and dabbling on what's working there now and how that's changed. Speaking of what's working, what do you see working yourself or through peers and what you're you're hearing from friends in marketing? What do you see working right now for growth in B2B marketing? It's no secret to everybody that this has been in the software space, just a turbulent year. And so when you have this much turbulence and you're, you have people who are job changing and moving from company to company, referrals and owning those relationships with your referrals, I believe is it's yes. really, really impactful and really powerful. People, when they move from company to company, regardless of the reason or the situation or the atmosphere, they have the things that they like using. And so I think as businesses that market into businesses, it's our job to maintain those relationships and utilize those for referrals. You know, they may have a piece of tech that they loved at their past company or that they were the champion and they brought in. And now they're at a company that either doesn't have that tech or uses a competitor. And so as that old piece of tech, it's your responsibility to know where they're at, understand what's going on in their new role. And that's actually caring about them as a person. And maintaining that relationship, which then feeds back into the referral. So I think referrals are really, really huge. That same attitude of building a relationship applies to your customers. And so working at how do you build a stronger relationship with your existing customers so they can either refer you to other business units, they can tell you what's really going on and what are their other pain points that you might be able to expand into that they might not know you have an offering or 
they might have a peer in their community that's looking for a solution and that you want to be the best person that they've ever worked with, the best software that they've ever worked with so that they think, Hey, I want to refer you to them. So it's customer marketing, I think can tie back to referrals. And so all of that is related to building better relationships and treating people, not just as dollars that you can bring in as, you know, recurring revenue, but treating people as people. And that I see is the, those are the fastest deals. They are the deals that close the fastest when somebody has either given you a soft intro, given you actually moved from a company to a company and they're trying to bring that tech with them, or they're trying to intro you to another branch of their organization. All of that, how, you know, it shortens your deal cycle so much and it gives you so much more trust before you even get into the deal that you don't have to build all that because you build the trust. If you build the trust, it stays with you. And you have other people speaking for you that are at this company. So it's not like you're trying, you have to sell that much harder. It's less like you have other people selling for you internally when you're off the call, which is perfect. Absolutely. That's so true. And I think the other thing that's working really well right now is leaning on partnerships, whatever that might look like for your organization, be it that you partner with agencies or you partner with other pieces of software that are integrators. When you really own that relationship together and go to market together as partners, you get that, you know, the intrinsic lift between the two brands together. People associate you together. And so they're more likely to trust because if I trust X brand, they're going to trust X brand. And so really looking at how do you deepen those partner relationships that you integrate really well with for whatever reason that might be and use that as leverage to get in the door with new business. We speak the same language, Anne. I feel like uh, (laughs) I've always said that partnerships and partner marketing is the hill I'll die on because it's just worked for me at every single company, very different industries. It's always key. And it's sad. Last year, when there were so many layoffs the past couple of years, I saw partner marketing and partnerships as some of the first teams to be let go. And I was just like, why? That's the most potential to grow, like, especially during these smaller times. Like, this is when the do more with less, you can do that with partnerships. Like, don't get rid of the partner people. It's interesting. I don't know why it's such a hard sell upward because I I think marketers get it and the power of partnership sales definitely because partnerships has kind of infiltrated into the sales side too, right? So it's kind of hybrid of both teams now, but so agree. And I, I just don't know why it's, it's a hard sell. Well, I think it's it's the attribution argument. At the end of the day, mm. it becomes who gets the attribution for a lot of those deals. And it's super hard yeah. to attribute actual revenue dollars to partnerships. It doesn't mean that it's not happening. And it just, that's where people, you know, they follow the money. They follow where can they attribute the dollars to. And sometimes that's a red herring to say, all of my revenue comes from X channel. Well, all of the other channels you yeah. have in market influence that other channel. And partnerships is a huge one that, there's just so many touch points. There is no way to properly yes. attribute, you know, first touch, last touch, multi-touch. There's no way to really give them the credit that they deserve because it is so yes. much more than just bringing an account in the door and handing it to sales. That's not the only thing a partnership can do. And it's just so hard to sell. It's hard to say, Hey, I yes. know that this is working, but I think that the biggest fear, and I think we are seeing this in the market now is that you're right. Like partnership teams have been slashed. Their budgets have been cut. And now we're starting to see, Oh, well, things have continued in a downward trend. So we need to now bring partnerships back. And so, yes. you know, the dollars are going back <laughs> to partnership because the only real way to test that it's working is to turn it off. And when suddenly you've lost something, you realize it and it's very, very God. painful. And it would be nice to get yes. that awareness 
before you're dealing with the ramifications of the decision. <laughs> so true. It's like turning off that brand campaign, right? You're like, why do I need this? And you turn it off and then you realize that's why I needed it because it was driving all these other <laughs> campaigns. So yeah, everything that works together it all comes back to attribution, man. I think we're, we focus too much on it because it's, what is it? The a rising tide lifts all boats. Like you need all of these different levers that you're, you're working in, in marketing to help each other. Cause it, it's true at my last company, we used to, there were instances where in marketing, we'd be like, Oh great. This, this deal closed and it came from XYZ campaign. That's awesome. That's what our HubSpot was showing us. And then our sales partnership person would come in and be like, Oh, but Bob from so-and-so said he referred that person. So it's like, Oh, well that that's awesome. Cause I never am one to care about credit and like sales versus marketing. We're all one in my world, but it's like, okay, cool. So he mentioned it. So then when they got this email or this ad from this campaign, they paid attention to it because Bob had referred or recommended and mentioned this company before. So it all works hand in hand. It's that word of mouth. You pay more attention to the ads, the email campaign, it all works together. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's the evolution that we're, we'll get to is that leadership has to get bought into that idea that you can't just yeah. pull dollars in X channel and just say, yeah, I didn't see, I didn't see deals attributed to that. So I'm just going to cut that. We have to be as marketers, we have to be willing to have that argument and that fight for that. If I do that, these are the things that are going to happen in return. That if I turn off my brand campaign, it is going to have an impact on deal velocity. If I turn off my partner mm -hmm. campaign, it's going to have an impact on organic and we have to be able to, and prepared to go into conversations with be it, you know, leadership or CFOs and say, Hey, all of these things together is what helps us build this beautiful picture. And so I can show you that this channel drove this and this channel didn't drove, drive anything. But I know that if I took one away, I'm going to see less than the other. And unfortunately it yeah. has to be a little bit on blind faith. And so you just have to know how to sell that argument internally and how to be able to have confidence in what you're saying Yes. Because until you just turn something off and you see an immediate decrease, it's super hard for the CFO to know that, yeah, that is true. And so you don't want to be in that situation. You want to be able to argue it yeah. before you have to make that cut. And sometimes you might have to make that cut to have the data to show this is what happened when we made the cut, right? And then you have that data, unfortunately, to show. But hopefully you're right. It doesn't get to that point. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's fair to say I'm going to have to. This is a hard decision. But it's also good to say, here's my prediction. Like, I think I had a coworker at a past job that talked about the in infinity loop hypothesis that you always want to be yeah. testing. And so you should have a hypothesis when you do something. And so if you say, hey, I believe if I cut this, it's going to have this impact. And then being able to come back and flip around the infinity loop and say, okay, this is, I cut this and this is what happened. And so being able to then go back and say, here's the evidence, here's the hypothesis statement. It was a scientific experiment and I have the data now to prove why we should never do that again or why we need to reinvest here. Yeah, that's interesting. And the always be testing. I haven't thought about it like that with the infinity loop. Speaking of cuts, would is there anything that you're seeing being cut right now or that you agree is just kind of done with that we're over as marketers and just isn't working the way it used to anymore? I think we're all having this ongoing argument about the value of gating content. I hear it time and time again from my peers. I hear it from customers who work with the company that I work with. All of that is how do you handle a world that was lead hungry 
and get into a quality account conversation. And I I think that Mm -hmm. we just, we have to figure out how do we get away from the lead attribution problem that it just keeps pigeonholing us as marketers. And it makes really easy areas to cut. It, unfortunately, it, it gives you something to point at. And as a digital marketer, I loved early, you know, tech marketing where it was very clear to say, yeah, display drove this and social drove that and yeah. I could track it. But yeah. it's so much more complex than that now. And especially as the people who are the ones who are willing to fill out the forms are less willing to put their real information in. And they're willing to believe, you know, Such. who they are before they got on site. And it, that comes with, you know, generational shifts in the workplace and changing dynamics of how we interact with tech and just trust and what we believe with what we should be doing with our personal data and our personal contact information. And all of that is evolving as we are in this digital first world. And so to be in this world, we have to get away from gated content and form fills and lead gen behaviors. Yes. Which so ironic. I'm curious if you a can call me out on this being something that existed for a long time and I'm just new to it or b if you have any idea about this or thoughts. I recently saw that Meta unveiled their lead ads which is basically forms on Facebook the same way like LinkedIn has always done this. It just seems so backwards to me because I mean I was excited at first, don't get me wrong cuz it's new tool, fun, shiny, but then Right away, I was like, okay, but like we're going against gated now, and this is kind of taking a step back. It's it's odd. Do you have any thoughts on that? It isn't new. Call me out if I'm just late to the game here. I think it's about a year old, so I think it's still new. Okay. I think Newish. it works for bottom <laughs> of the funnel conversion. It's really, really effective, okay. if, especially in a space like Facebook, where maybe you're trying to contact a family photographer and you just don't need to go in the rabbit hole of their website. Like just fill out the form. That is super, super easy. So in, in the world of Facebook, okay. I think that those lead gen forms make a ton of sense. I don't think okay. as a consumer or as a person who makes decisions at a business, I would fill out a form on Facebook for a B2B solution. And I think that that's where, yeah. or for a, an ebook, because if I'm on Facebook, I'm there because I'm trying to unwind or I need to take a break or I have five minutes between meetings. I'm not on Facebook trying to learn actively about solutions for my business. Like there's very, very little of that happening on Facebook. I'd say there's some of it happening in some of the Facebook communities. There's a lot of really powerful yeah. Facebook groups that I've actually throughout yeah. my career learned a lot from. A lot of those communities have moved off of Facebook and into places like Slack, but they still yes. there's still bits and pieces of it that exist in Facebook. But I am very unlikely to fill out a form asking for an ebook on Facebook. But a, a family photographer, absolutely registering for a local event, maybe, and you could do that with a business. So I think it all depends on your use case. Okay. I think that what you're there using you it for really matters and being thoughtful about how you're using a form ad in a channel like Facebook. That's interesting. Okay, good take on it. I also wonder, I wonder if they were just, I had never seen the Facebook lead ads before. So I wonder if they were just putting it in front of me, like new tool for you, positioning it like this new shiny thing, which worked because I got excited at first. So that's really good context though. I can see that working for B2C, 
But for B2B, it depends. If you're saying snag a demo, that might not work in this context. But if it's something like, let's say for B2B, perhaps if you're hosting a local event and you have your targeting done right, then maybe having them sign up and it'll most likely be their personal emails and you won't know who they are until they get to the event. But that could work for for those signups, perhaps. Absolutely. And that's the thing about those those form fills that come from channels like Facebook and LinkedIn is people's personal profiles. Those are their personal profiles. So it, it disconnects a little bit of that information that you absolutely do need in the B2B context. But there are other tools, right? There are other tools you can do to amend that data and connect them back to the right people. It's just so much more complicated. Yeah, so true. Well, one thing I wanted to make sure we talked about before we wrap up, I saw you post about this on LinkedIn. So I want to dive in is, so you are an avid reader like me. I'm always, well, I'm an audible reader, quote unquote. So listener to to books. I'm curious what's on your shelf right now, whether it's Kindle, physical book or audible and Then I want to go into, I saw you post about book talk. I just created a TikTok maybe a month ago. So I'm very new to this world. Is there a book talk tag that I need to be following somehow? Oh, it is a rabbit hole. Book talk is a huge rabbit hole. So right now, professionally, I have my professional read. So right now I am loving Busting Silos, which is a a great book about how do you better tie together sales and marketing. And then personally, you know, at the end of the day, after, you know, a busy day of meetings and leaving work and having a toddler, you know, sometimes I just want like mindless things. And I love a good young adult fantasy book. I love it because you can just, it's fast. It's like watching trashy TV for me. So I really enjoy that. And so that's where book talk is kind of funny because book talk is okay. It's both on TikTok and on Instagram. And it's a lot of people who are talking about books that they love. And it creates this spiral of the viral sensation that is advanced reader copies get sent to a group of people and their job is to read the book and post reviews. Well, they've started a lot of those advanced reader copies are going to people who have pretty good social media presences. And they're starting to feed this reader community before books get in the hands of people. And so there's there's just yes. the idea of like, how do you create a viral buzz around books? And that's what's happening in book talk. Yeah. And that's what I find super fascinating when I look at it from a marketing perspective, because it's, yeah. it's the most pure form of influencer marketing that I think is happening in the space. This isn't somebody who's staging a beautiful house so they can show a cleaning product. This is someone who yeah. they spent hours reading a book getting invested in the characters and falling in love with them and then talking about it authentically. So that I think is really interesting. And then the other side of the book talk conversation that's fascinating is these curated spaces of people showing off their trophy books is a new thing in a world where so much is on Audible, so much is on Kindle. You don't physically have copies of books anymore. And so publishers are doing what they can to inspire and incentivize people to own physical copies of books. And in some instances, trick people into buying trick, convince people that they should buy multiple copies of the same book for a reason. So there's a a author who's very well known in the fantasy space. Her name is Sarah J. Mass. And she has a book that's being released in the next week. And she has at multiple different retailers, different versions of each book. So there is a special edition at Barnes and Noble. There is a special edition at Target. There is a special edition at Walmart. And so there will be people, I will not be one of them. There will be people who will buy (laughs) seven copies of this book because they want to see the, the 
extra chapters that are in each of these books. And you have to assume that those chapters are not relevant to the plot. I hope because that would be very confusing (laughs) if you're missing chapters from your book. But there's supposed to be special scenes. And so publishers have gotten really, really smart about how do they get people to buy hardbacks again? Because that's where they make the most of their money. They're not making as much money out of eBooks. They make it out of printing. There's so much margin in printing a book. And so be it that they're releasing multiple editions and getting people to buy various copies of the same book, or they're making the editions that they have absolutely beautiful where they're making books, not just be your mass market paperback that, you know, we used to see on the supermarket shelf and making them works of art that you want to display in your home. And so a lot of this book talk community is around building these bookcases that are beautiful and are full of not knickknacks, but full of books, which we've gotten in this world of these staged pottery barn lights and they don't don't have books on their shelves. And so it's yes. the counter of that. Of why would you want to collect these beautiful books? And they're incentivizing people to do it by making things that are truly beautiful. And it's something I'm weirdly passionate about. Like I could talk all day about how fascinating publishing is right now. It is fascinating. I love the return to print. It's reminding me of two different things. So, well, three. One, I'm tempted to turn the camera and show you my really messy actual bookshelf because there's way too many books for the one bookshelf I have in my living room. So we need to get another one and actually put books on it. But my husband and I always joke about when we go like shelf shopping or furniture shopping, like, okay, how do we put the books? But no one uses shelves for books anymore. Like, it's so crazy. You're right. It's display random dust collectors. It's so odd. But yeah, we we are book people here. But second, it makes me think of magazines, like when obviously magazines are a totally different game now, as you mentioned, when you first were starting out, like magazines, they used to, they towards the end, they were getting limited edition covers, right? With different people and different poses and people would collect those. So it helped with their sales a bit. And then second or third, we were just at an event called GTM 2023 for a pavilion and winning by design did such a good job of this. I feel like you would love this case study, right? They printed or they published a book that was so beautiful. It was a beautiful coffee table book. I'm blanking on the name right now, but it had, it was about their infinity loop for go-to-market strategy. And it, it's this thick and it was huge, huge. Like it looked like a dictionary or all-inclusive encyclopedia, but it was beautiful. And the soft cover is just amazing. It was the first release, like they hadn't published this yet. So it was like a first exclusive and they were giving them out during sessions and everyone wanted these heavy, heavy books, but you felt like you won if you were one of the people like walking around the show with these massive, beautiful books that you then had to take on the airplane. Like people didn't care. It was that coveted at this event. So they did an awesome job on there. You're so right. This, this like making it the scarcity piece and just very beautifully done makes you want it. So fun. I love that. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that book because I'd love to learn more about what they put out there. Yeah. I'll find the link. I'll put it in show notes and I'll send it to you also because they did a really good job on that. So I bet there's ways that we can leverage this in B2B as they've, they're showing us too and in by design, but interesting. Well, absolutely. You think about like swag and gifts, corporate yes. gifting. What is really, do you need another mug <laughs> with a logo on it? Yeah, Probably not. You yeah. probably don't. So how do you actually make it things that A, people want, B, that they're not going to throw away 
and see that they're more likely to sit in a Zoom meeting and use and you see if it is logo. And if it's not logoed, if you're giving a gift, make it a gift. Don't make it an ad. Like there's just, it's, there's a huge difference between giving someone a gift and giving someone an ad. Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Ironically, there's a book on that called Giftology to check out. That's all about gifting things from the heart that are more meaningful and memorable that do not have your logo. Like rule number one is no logo on it if it's a gift. So that's interesting. Plus, if you give a book, if you write a book as a company or your CEO writes a book and you give that to people and they put it on the shelf in back of them in Zoom, like how many people are seeing this glimpse of this? So it's interesting. Cool. Absolutely. I think that that is, I've asked people about the books on their shelves. I have absolutely done that. Yeah. Yes. So cool. All right. We could have a whole nother like book talk episode at another time in, but thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom and info with us today. I so appreciate it. I I learned a few new terms and and things today. So I, I love it. As a sign off, what is your one key tip to fellow women in B2B marketing? I'd say trust the women around you and grow your community. I think that there is nothing Mm. more valuable than reaching out and taking advantage of the relationships that you have. I think that's a theme I've mentioned a couple of times is you need to build better relationships. You need to build stronger relationships. As children, we are taught to be competitive with one another. And I have found that there is so much more power in women who build networks among one another. And so I think look for those opportunities to outstretch a hand, be it somebody in who has appeared to you or somebody who's across the company that, you know, maybe you see that they look like they're really busy and maybe they just need a, they just need somebody to talk to. And it's hard to have yeah. those conversations out of context, but taking the opportunity to build that relationship, especially in a virtual world is so important. Yes. I love that. Building your community, helping each other rise up especially women to women. I love that. Thank you, Anne. Great note to end on. And where's the best place for people to connect with you? Of course, following your podcast, Sassy, on Spotify, and I'm sure all the other major platforms. And where else? I'd say LinkedIn. LinkedIn's another great place to connect with me. I try to be pretty active on there. And so I'd love to connect with more people who, you know, either they want book recommendations or just to connect and get to know one another. Love it. Well, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening and tuning in. If you like the show, share the show, recommend to a friend, rate it, review us. It helps us get in front of more eyeballs and and ears. So thank you everybody. And thanks Anne for joining. Thank you, Jane. I really appreciate it.